0: I'm
1: Jack Hergeth. And I'm Stephen Kramer Glickman. And this is Never Surrender. The show where we sit down with the most successful people in the entertainment industry to talk about failure and how they pushed through it and never gave up. Because we've all failed. We've all had setbacks. Yeah, we've all questioned whether to keep going. But at some point, everybody struggles. Yeah, I mean, I've been let go from some of my favorite jobs. You and me both. We just hope that
0: by listening to this podcast, it will help give you the strength to never surrender.
2: Hold up. What was that?
1: Today, we're talking with an amazingly talented comedian and writer. He created and starred in one of my favorite shows of all time, the acclaimed HBO show, Crashing. And he hosts his own late night talk show, The Pete Holmes Show. He's the host of
0: the long running podcast, You Made It Weird, and is the author of the best-selling book, Comedy Sex God. He's also had his share of struggles. His first marriage ended in divorce and his shows on HBO and TBS both got canceled. But he's never given
1: up. If you haven't already figured out who our guest is today, well, then you're a moron. This is Pete Holmes. Pete Holmes, oh my god, thank you so much for having us. We're in you. We're here and this is so great.
3: <laughs> we were just chatting, and then yeah. you just threw into your showbiz voice. I, just, I jumped hard. into yeah. showbiz voice. Yeah, I love everything that. awkward. I weird, did like, start doing right morning morning radio voice. <laughs> they call that puking. <laughs> yeah. you know? What? That's the industry term. Maybe NPR. Do you guys know that? Well, they don't do that on NPR. But uh, they call that puking when people are like, maybe KBL. <laughs> that's, that's called puking. So Dude. your producer would say, "Puke less, puke more." Oh, okay. All right. You puked so a little you bit. Less. I'm gonna puke
1: less. Try I'm to gonna less. try my best. I'm gonna try my best. Yeah, I have to. Every I, I, I'm sure you've done a lot of morning radio. Do you? Do you, I mean to go and promote?
3: uh stuff it's been when a are on while. the road. Do
1: you do that when you're on the road or not really?
3: Uh well, certainly at the beginning of of your career you do a lot of like sort of wacky morning radio. And now I do from time to time. Yeah. Not as often as uh as you might think. I think I don't know, once you have your own podcast it's sort of nice you can do not that you can take care of your own promotion, but you go from a comedian with absolutely no influence whatsoever on your no way to reach your fans whatsoever so you're sort of at the mercy of maybe the morning zoo radio guys Mm. and then hopefully when you do your own podcast you can move some tickets before you get into town and you don't have to do the five or six station 6am tour Uh where every comedian I know would always go on stage at night and say, did anyone hear me on the radio? Like, is anyone here because you heard me on the radio? Because that's how mad we are that we have to do it. And no one ever claps. Oh, wow. Not to say that it doesn't work. Maybe people just feel awkward and they don't. clap. (laughs) But like how many people on a Friday are listening to the radio at 630 in the morning? And they're like, (laughs) not me tonight. Although maybe that is what normal people do. Regular people. Non-comedian people. Right. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. Uh,
1: I do. Uh, I'm I'm on a show called the yeah. Patty and Frank show, which is I do once a month here in L.A. And I have to go on and I challenge myself to tell a stand up story that may be dirty, like a dirty stand up story or a, a, a new bit that I'm working on that may not be clean and find a way to do it clean on the radio. Without getting bleeped, oh, and and it's helped build some material because for me, like because like try you know like you go to the you, you know, the improv and places like this are like terrific to work out material, but on the radio where there's like a couple th- you know, thousands of people listening, and you're like they're all paying attention to every word you say, and if you say if you swear or something, right, it you can then they just, they, they bleep out the last 10 seconds and then half, you know, piece of your joke is gone. So, right.
3: Yeah. Uh, that's, but been... then you're just playing the game of like, this is sort of like what my book is about. You're playing the game of like, well, what words are you allowed to say? Growing up? Christian is like growing up on the radio actually. <laughs> is, is <what> I'm, <laughs> I'm sure. Like it's a very easy game for me to play is like when you play, go on the morning radio, you're just like, you can say balls, right? And and you can always say balls. Like it's the same thing playing a Christian college or something. I'd be like, can you say bastard? Like you want to find the line whenever culture is like, Oh my God, we're so sensitive. Right. You know what I mean? Whether it could just be your friend's parents that edit out the scary scenes in movies or, um, what people say about like college crowds nowadays, everybody's so sensitive. I'm like, You don't know sensitive until you're from my world, right? Yeah, (laughs) you know what I mean. And and there are others that had it worse than me. Jehovah's Witness, I think, can be traditionally worse. If this is bad, then it's worse. Let's just say more extreme. Mormons can be more extreme. So you grew up
1: in an evangelical household,
3: yeah, basically, right? More or less. I got it more from the church than my parents. Um, My my parents are into it, but I mean, how often were you going?
1: How often were you at church?
3: I would be on certainly on Sunday, but then uh, at least once or twice Wednesday or sometimes Tuesday and Wednesday. Yeah, little Bible studies and stuff. Sure, yeah. So I know I've, it was actually helpful. I mean, I'm looking at Brian Regan's framed album on the wall behind you because we're in my garage, and I love Brian Regan, and and those guys that know how to go, like, he's huge in Utah, for example. Like, he goes to oh, yeah, Utah, wow. and he sells out, like, nine shows because they want clean comedy. Clean by their standards. We're back to the relativity of it all. Yeah. So he's Mormon clean. <laughs> so I'm evangelical pretty naughty
1: (laughs) was there was
0: there a lot of sorry was there a lot of comedy you were listening to at that point when you were growing up
3: I mean it was Cosby I used to have Cosby framed up on the wall too I took it down for obvious reasons it was actually pretty um sometimes life is a movie and I was opening the boxes because I moved here and I had those records so I have Steve Martin and Brian Regan behind you and those two answers for you and those are both pretty clean very silly guys i would say silly first and clean is maybe a secondary consideration steve's a little dirty um very very mild so anyway i was always kind of on the lookout for stuff that would be mom car friendly or church friendly so that's why i start when i started i did a lot of clean comedy and that's why i think i swear so much now is because i don't want to confuse even my interest in spirituality with any sort of like false ethic you know what I mean? Which is what I think happens a lot of times.
1: I mean, especially as a kid, they they do confuse those two things a lot. And they do make it... We still it... do. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I
3: think that's one of the big points of the book is that like religion is, or spirituality is supposed to be about... Something that occurs inside of you, right? It's supposed yeah. to be about something that no one else can see, really. It's not, it's not a trophy and it's not a membership and it's not certainty. It's sure. about something happens and the way that you see reality is sort of forever changed. Yeah. And when that transformation happens, Christians would call that being born again or being saved, or Buddhists would call it enlightenment. You have this sort of transformation. Chances are you're not gonna be an asshole. But what we did in the West is what we wanted to look as though we had it. So we would like pretend to be holy. I mean, I I say this with love. I I do it too. And it makes sense. So you act kind and you love your neighbor because somebody told you to love your neighbor as opposed to having had the transformation or the conversion and actually loving them on a soul level, not because you like them. Fuck that. Like there, You can not like people and still love them because their consciousness with a meat puppet grown around it, just like you. Mm-hmm. But love is not something you do in your brain. Oh, interesting. You don't think about love. You don't think about peace. And you don't think about God. You don't think about dancing. You don't think about art. And you shouldn't be thinking about sex or you're doing it wrong. Yeah. All of the great things in life, and this is one of the points of, of the book, are trans They're beyond rationality. Yeah. But we've sort of yanked love and God and all of these things into our sort of Greek-influenced scientific model, which is great for building a bridge. It vaccinated me. You know what I mean? It kept me healthy. Sure. Vaccinated my baby, keeps her healthy. It keeps us alive. It built this sauna. All these things. is wonderful. We're, we are the beneficiaries Terrific. of that method of thinking. So I am for it. Yeah. <laughs> Yet, when it comes to when you take god and put it into that system you come up with things like well nothing about jesus was written until 100 years after he died or Mm -hmm. this contradicts this or that contradicts that or what do we do about the god of the old testament who's sort of a dick sometimes like what do we do with this right and then we go well the data doesn't hold up delete it and that's what we've done and i understand that but what the book is trying to say is it's, it's going from head religion to heart religion. And the heart religion will never be satisfying to the head. And that's what I'm trying to say is like, I'm not here to persuade you or get you to think what I think. I'm trying to say it's not about what you think. It's not about what you believe. It's about something that's ineffable. You can't really put it into language. But here are some of the stories, the techniques, and the practices that sort of help you get beyond your mind but it'll never be that appealing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow. Amazing. Which is what Jesus wow. means
3: when he says, why is the path uh, that leads to destruction. He doesn't mean hell. He just means like, look, we're all kind of walking on this path. That's just, we're chasing our own tail. Right. That's a big point of mine is like, we're happy as long as our needs are being met. Sure. But happiness yeah. is a fucking stupid pursuit. You need yeah. to look, you need to find another way to look at reality that is not contingent on your circumstances and plug into that. And one of the reasons I love talking about it is because it helps me do that.
1: Well, no, so, uh, no, if we, who, what is the difference between the, the this Pete Holmes that we're sitting across from now and the Pete Holmes that the, that cr- I know that crashing is based on your real life. So if we go way back to you being married and then, Um, that the incident happening and finding out that your wife was with somebody else and Mm -hmm. this whole thing, how did you react then? And what is the diff? Like what's the difference between how you handle things now and
3: how you handle how would
0: today's Pete react to that?
3: Yeah. I mean, well, I'd like to think that, you know, Pete back then, if it had been today's, well, (laughs) it just doesn't really work. Yeah. But you're trying not to, get too lost in any one game uh of course i'm married now and i take that seriously yet at the same time behind it i'm giggling like look at these two things pretending that anything's happened whatsoever there's a commitment there right but i don't get i don't that used to be my identity it was like this there's a commitment forged in the church of my god the one true god and my parents these were all powerful almost greek god symbols my parents told me to get married and my church told me to get married and i believed all of these things it was like melting a a ball in another layer of gold and another layer of gold and another so it was like this is fucking pure this is what i'm supposed to do now i would never put that much stock in any idea symbol or person yeah (laughs) i'm so much more in touch with who I am so but the, the, the back then was like I'm not just marrying this person I'm doubling down on belief in my parents that they know what's right for me because my mom was like you should get married yeah I was doubling down on the belief that God was looking out for me. And I and I took that to mean that God pays out for me. He protects me. He gets me good things and keeps bad things away. This is the, and I say this with love, I don't mean it to be condescending, but it's sort of the Santa Claus model of God, is that I'm a good boy and therefore he rewards me. This was also what I was buying into. And sure. I was like, God has been so good to me, I will... Basically, by the timeshare that he just pitched me. <laughs> sure, you know what I mean? I'm like, oh you got God, it, Lord. Yeah. My marriage was like a timeshare. And I was like, this guy's been good to us so far. I think we should listen to him. Wow. So
0: it was... You just have to go to a 20-minute presentation and you'll be fine. And yeah.
3: the tickets to Disneyland are free. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it's... Uh, you know, so it wasn't just a marriage. It wasn't just... Like, my second wedding was... Just inviting who we wanted, just vows that you could tell that we know and love and understand each other. It's one of the most beautiful things I've been a part of. It is the most beautiful thing I've ever been a part of. My first wedding, not not to put it down, but I was 22. It was all my parents, friends. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I didn't even have any cake or wine. I was too busy the whole night playing good boy this is what i'm saying like playing a role that's what i really want to stress is like i'm not selling any i'm really not selling anything i'm trying to reduce suffering and restore a connection to something bigger than ourselves a mystery Mm -hmm. and i don't mean something somewhere else i mean this that we're a part of yeah so i'm not selling anything but um i do want people to be free if i have an agenda it's that i want people to be free so when i look at that guy he was not free He was playing the good son. He was playing the good husband. He was playing the good Christian. He was doing all these things that he thought he was supposed to do because he got confused and he thought that those thoughts of who he was supposed to be is who he is, when really he is freedom itself. He is boundless. You are free to move in any direction. You can be and you have an inkling towards who you actually are. But I was too busy playing who I thought I was supposed to be. But, I mean, if my wife cheated on me now, it would be very different. It would be sad. And I'm not Mm -hmm. not phony holy. I wouldn't be like, this is all. This is my karma and this is grace. But there would be some of that.
0: And did you, when that happened to you, when when she left, did you view that as a a failure?
3: I looked at it as, um, so talking about the Western model and the Greek model, right? Yeah. Of logic. (laughs) We just call it logic. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) I... Ran it through that system, and I was like, Well, God, I looked at him like the mafia, and I was paying him protection money. And then someone still threw a brick through my bakery window. Mm-hmm. It's like, Well, this guy's not working. Why am I giving him 10 percent? Literally, I was, Why am I giving him 10 <laughs> percent wow. of my money? Seriously. He doesn't work the way that God had been described to me um di- was a was a system that didn't a lot for suffering which is really confusing when things like 911 were happening you know what i mean yeah, we were or just cancer. like yeah totally there's yeah. mic and there's micro sufferings for everyone every day and to me, it was like a good mood religion. <laughs> I've heard of old time religion. This was a good mood religion. And like a prosperity gospel, which it was like, God ain't broke no more. Uh, my pastor didn't talk that way. But there was an understanding that God sort of wants us to be thriving and, and doing well and getting promoted. And we didn't really know what to do when things went shitty. So my wife leaves and I just kind of got a crash, <laughs> crashing, crash course <laughs> in like oh, this is, the game doesn't work how I thought it worked. Suffering isn't for other people that I just sort of read about and pity that they don't have Jesus like right. Jiminy Cricket watching out for them. Suffering's for everybody. So that was a very essential break, was I was like, this doesn't work how I thought it worked. And then at first, of course, I just deleted everything. I was like, well, fuck it, it doesn't work. But then eventually I started to wonder, well, how does it work? We think in America that we'll be on our deathbeds and surrounded by loved ones, and we'll be remembering Six Flags, or we're going to be remembering that three-way that we had or whatever, and we'll be like, I guess I was the king, right? Right. Were you? Because your breath's getting thin, and it's ending. There's a way and the and the eastern religions have all known this, Taoism and Buddhism, they've all known this. Hinduism have understand that life is a practice of non-resistance and learning to say yes to what is so that you can die well and with an understanding. There's a saying in Taoism, he who finds his way in the morning can gladly go in the evening we have a model of like he who eats and fucks and snorts as much as he can will also just go in the evening, I guess. You know what I'm saying? It's (laughs) like, we don't, we don't have that model, but like this, to make this a little bit more practical is it's like Richard Rohr, who I adore eh, Richard Adore says the way you do anything is the way you do everything. So when you're brushing your teeth and you're just trying to get through it and you're just impatient, you just want to go to bed well, that's all that's how, that's how you're gonna do everything, you know what I mean? Like interesting. When you're on a delayed flight, I was on like that trip to Hawaii that I just told you about, we went on vacation as a family. Flights delayed. We're waiting on the ground in Hawaii for like 30 minutes, and people are complaining, and I was like, the beach isn't gonna save you. The way you are on this delight, delayed flight is the way you're going to be on the beach, and the way you're going to be on the beach is the way you're going to be on the flight, and the way you're going to be on the flight is the way you're going to brush your teeth. The way you're going to brush your teeth is the way you're going to die. It's all this. It's all a practice in acceptance and non-resistance. That's wow. what enlightenment is. Is not it, there's like a great. That doesn't mean that we can't rage against the machine and protest and fight to make a, the world a better place. That would be you not resisting your urge to help. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there, there's you know, still room for virtue. I love that. Um,
1: <laughs> so, uh, in in real life, in comparison to the show, how soon after the incident, the the the, the breakup with the wife, how soon into it did you do stand up? When did stand up actually take over
3: in your life? Well, I was um, a little bit more successful than I was on crashing, just a little bit. Well, I- yeah. <laughs> no, I mean when I, when my wife left me. Oh, okay, okay. You know, we yeah. turned the volume up on the idea that Pete was an open mic or his wife left him, and then he sort of doubled down and yeah. went where he was afraid Plot to go. Plot wise, it makes a lot of sense. It's a way better story. In reality, it's like Luke Skywalker's aunt and uncle die, and then he goes off and becomes a Jedi. Mm -hmm. In reality, Luke was already training with Yoda, and then his aunt and uncle died. It's not as good of a story. That's what I'm saying my story. (laughs) I got it. I was already like Jedi curious, and very very determined on becoming a Jedi. You win. (laughs) Um, And then my aunt and uncle died, which was the divorce. But in um, real life, she... You know, I didn't walk in on her. she It's in the book. She, she, like, took me out to dinner, and then she read a script, which I've, like, since learned. That was my first relationship. So I've since learned how hard it can be to break up with somebody. So, like, I really sure. do feel bad for her because I was such, like, a sweet boy. But also, like... Not a great husband, not in the way that like you think of when you think not a great husband. I was there. People thought I was my, maybe traveling. Around. That's not the case. I was there. I was sweet. I just wasn't mature. I just wasn't like a a, well, yeah, a grown person. Yeah, you well, were you were twenty two, 22, right? yeah, yes. yeah, you
0: know that's, that's. I was a child. Yeah,
3: yeah. I'm not saying I was worse than others. I'm just saying that's that's what was going on. I, like I, I couldn't be a grown person.
0: Well, what's a, what script was she reading from? That that's.
3: Well, she wrote out a little uh, list, an itemized list, so she wouldn't lose her nerve. Um, Again, I feel bad thinking about both of us. And so she told me, and then I think I lived in the house uh, for maybe two weeks as I looked for a place. And that's sort of where the conceit of crashing came, is it was like, I called Nick Kroll and Craig Baldo and Mulaney, and I was looking for a place to stay, and ended up staying at Craig Baldo's place. He's a comedian. And... um, and that's when, like, I started really relying on the community. It's still that way. Like, comedians are sort of bad friends. Like, yeah. I you know the deal. It's mm-hmm. like, I, I say, like, Mulaney is one of my best friends, and I talk to him once every two months. You know what I'm saying? And like, um, a lot of these people you only see out. <laughs> you see right. when you do yeah. sets. And then well, what can be helpful or not helpful? But if something goes wrong. I like to think that we can be there for one another.
1: I spent a year with Jeff Ross on the road and uh, preparing for his one-hour special to do uh-huh. the, to do this bit with him and this whole thing, and him and I had a, a strange moment in. Uh, Florida we were at this show and it was they took every everything for him moved everything around got him got us up through this big club and everyone was moving around for him and they get us in this little VIP section and it's just him and me sitting together alone in a VIP section mm. no one else mm-hmm. and I go are you excited for your special and he goes yeah and I go are your um are your parents Going to be there? And he goes, Both my parents have passed away.
3: So you nailed it with both questions.
1: Cool. So you that wasn't off. And then we, in we just any sat way. there in silence together in a VIP room. <laughs> it's so funny. It was, if
3: somebody asked me, "Are you excited about your special?" All I think of is what percentage ready is the special. Oh, so the first <laughs> question is already stressful. It's a bad. question Then you question. brought up his, de- his dead parents. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> nailed it. Nailed I think that's it. one of the things I love getting this out there on my own podcast and now on this one is that I don't. It's weird. My wife Valerie uh, is always pointing out. She's like. You're, you're so confident in some ways and then you're so vulnerable in other ways. And that's really helpful for me as I try to know myself and, you know, kind of adjust myself to others who may not know this. Like sometimes people text me and they'll be like, my friends, Mickey, Ralph and Dan are coming to your show tonight. I'm like, don't tell me that. <laughs> I don't want to know. Like they, Val's like no one knows that that's how you would feel. And Do they, you
0: have a fear of, of failing when you when you go on stage? I just Does have, that a, never I go have a fear away?
3: of physical pain. You know, it can be psychologically and a little bit physically painful. So mm-hmm. it would be silly to not at least be aware of it, and that's what makes it so fun. I have to imagine like right, racing dirt bikes wouldn't be fun if you didn't know that you could like also break your shoulder. Right. So I have that just enough if stand-up was safe um it wouldn't be interesting at all yeah right
0: more to come with pete holmes after the break
1: We got to talk about uh, Pete Holmes' show because this that's show, the background. This is the
0: background, so nice,
1: which is so cool. Yeah, the show was such a funny show. Oh, thanks! And you did unbelievable sketch work on there, and the interviews with people roasting you and being mean to you on there, yeah. was so funny. Um, yeah, I missed that. That was so fun. What like uh, that's got to it's got to be kind of a. Because I I feel like the difference between that show ending... um, Tell me if I'm wrong about this. But I feel like the difference between that show ending and crashing ending is crashing... Like, you guys had some idea that you needed to wrap up the story and Mm. wrap up the season. And that crashing could come to an end. Mm. As opposed to Pete Holmes' show, which I feel like was kind of pulled out from you a little bit. Yeah, that might be near. true. I wouldn't disagree with
3: that entirely. But I wonder if I
1: love both shows, by the way. I appreciate it. I'm a fan that. of That's both.
3: That's really shows. sweet. And I'd I be, like on
1: Crashing, I was following that show episode to episode, of course, f- the whole way through because um I knew a bunch of I know a bunch of people who were writing on it and uh-huh. I wanted to hear what what they were gonna put in and I yeah. wanted to, you know, see what you were doing. And yeah. I loved that you had so many great, so many comedians, so many good friends, and Melissa via Senor and uh-huh. Ian Edwards, all these wonderful people were in there doing their thing with you. Yeah. And I love Apatow. So, just talk with us a little bit
3: about the differences between those shows. Well, I think I might have been more prepared for the cancellation of Crashing because of the cancellation of the Pete Holmes show. So I think you might be right, but maybe not. I don't know if it's for the reason you'd think, because they were both abrupt. I think. Um, even though we wrapped up the story on Crashing, I don't think anybody was really sure which way it would go. Yeah, mm-hmm. And because Pete Holmes' show had been canceled, I was always aware that things could go, you never know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like we had had, and I have such a deep love and appreciation for HBO. So it's not like HBO is keeping us in the dark, but they were always honest with us. They were like, we love the show. That was what they would always say. And then there was always a part where it's like, does it make sense financially like you just have to sympathize with the people who are paying for the thing sure <laughs> is it i i want it it's like i want it to be mutually beneficial i want to be a hit for you right yeah and they have you know they they might not be as um algorithmic as maybe other networks, but they have their own ways of saying like girls wasn't uh, a huge numbers hit, but it was a huge cultural hit. We weren't a huge numbers hit and we weren't a huge cultural hit either. Mm. So like, was I aware we were a critical hit, You know what I mean? And and, and everybody that I know and care about loved it. And that, and that was awesome. So I feel really happy about that. But I also knew nobody was asking me to be on the cover of Rolling Stone. Like, like I'm speaking of Lena, like Lena was on the cover and I was like, holy shit, that shows not going anywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we didn't have that like sealed, like Han Solo, like thermite, your show is here for as long as you want it to be. So we knew we were always a little bit like pirates with knives in our teeth, swinging from season to season. That's a nice image. That's a nice one. That's very nice. <laughs> so we knew that's we had image. to we had to fight for it. And then and then the third ship, you know, that one sank and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> but it it sank sounds like I'm very happy with how it ended. Pete Home Show was like, I think I, I thought for sure we would come back because we were so cheap. Pete right. show was like peanuts. I'm not saying like we weren't making a living, but it was very low mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was also just low production. I'm not talking about my salary per se. I'm saying we only had that stage where we shot for like, you'd have it for like two weeks or something. Oh, wow. So you'd shoot nine episodes in a week for two weeks or something. And then you wouldn't have the stage for three weeks because they're shooting something else. And then you'd get it back. Like, But I remember um, when that show was canceled, I, I was surprised because I was like, what else is on at midnight on TBS? But again, you know, people at TBS have told me, I, I don't know if they're just being nice, but they're like, if, if it was the new regime, they wouldn't have canceled it. Because right. now TBS is certainly kind of skewing a different way. Yeah. At the time, it was sort of like an anomaly that Conan even had a, a show to follow it. Right. And that was like, I don't know. I'm proud. I, I don't think you can do any better. I love the Ben Stiller show. I love all these shows that are like... Mm-hmm people are still like, I love the Pete home show. And I'm like, that is so cool. Yeah. Cause we awesome. worked so hard.
1: On it. <laughs> it's, really, it's a terrific show. Is yeah. that, would you ever want to do that again? Would you ever want to host a, a show again like that? I
3: don't know. I'm open to it. I'm, I'm open to anything. It's not, it's not something that I sit around and uh, think about. The thing that I did like about was it's like life came to you. I think Conan and all those guys mm. would agree that it's like you stay put and the world just sort of revolves into you, like the guests come to you, the mm-hmm. audience has come to you. Everyone's people are literally reading books for you, writing jokes for you. And you're just sort of like, when we were in the flow, that was some of the best show business I've ever experienced where That's you're just amazing. like, okay, now you got to put on this, uh, you know, kimono and shoot this sketch. And as soon as you're done with that, you're going to go and we got to tape that episode. Then when you're done with that, we're going to meet and we're going to plan the uh, fucking, this special thing. It was really fun to be, um, relatively young <laughs> and single. I was dating Val, but it was long distance. And like, if you look at those monologues, one of the things that I'm really pleased about it, my brother said this to me. He's like, they're single guy monologues. It's (laughs) like, it's like this public diary of like, this is what it's like when you have just a little bit of success, enough success that you're not like stressed about money. Cause they're not all just like um, paying the bill monologues. They're a little bit like, get up and have a morning, (laughs) (laughs) get up 30 minutes earlier. And eat breakfast at the table or you read the paper, because you're an adult. Like, it's all these things that you would think when you're 33 years old, right. when you're just finally starting to feel like a grown-up. So when I look back on those monologues, I'm like, I'm glad that they we have that snapshot. Because I've said, like, with Crashing, I had to go back in time, you know, to when I was starting in comedy. Yeah. My life now is... On one level, comfort-wise is better, but it's far less interesting than it was when I was doing that talk show. That was like a scrappy guy, and a pirate, knife, mm-hmm. teeth. Yeah. And and crashing is about a time when I was even more desperate than that. Fascinating, too, is like that show ends. What do you do? Like what happens for the following days and how do you when, pick yourself up? When Pete, Holmes, up? When Pete Holmes' show stopped. Yeah, there you go. There's your never surrender. It's, I thought it was so ironic that I'm doing Never Surrender cuz all I'm doing with my mother is trying to surrender. <laughs> In fact, so much so much of my life, if I had a podcast, a spiritual podcast, it would be called Always Surrender. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's so great. That's
3: um, so great. But uh when that show, so I I love it because it it speaks so well of Oren Brimmer, who's a dear friend of I know, mine. I really and, well. Yeah, Yeah. so Oren is a huge part of the Pete Holmes show. So is Jamie Lee and Joe DeRosa and Matt McCarthy, obviously, and Nate Fernald. I I should name everybody. I'm trying to remember the whole room. Um, Karen Kilgareff. We had a a really great team that was doing some awesome stuff. Now I've probably forgotten Adam Stein. I've probably forgotten like one person. Sure, sure. (laughs) That's going to be a problem for me tonight, as I remember. Anyway, um, but Oren is really the, the star of this... Uh, story is that the show got canceled and we were just so lean. It was almost like we were like Olympians or something. We, I wasn't really drinking. I was being really healthy. I'd go to bed at like 10 o'clock every night. Cause long ass days you go to bed sometimes earlier just to get your rest and have a morning and get up. And so when the show was sort of pulled out from under us, we felt like as strong as we'd ever been like creatively and physically just felt like healthy people and then <laughs> when the show got canceled me and Oren, like i said we were so swift and lean that we were like okay what next we we before the show even stopped airing we had gone out and met we met the day we found out got the bad news in my apartment over uh in this neighborhood and then i called Oren. And he and he was over in like 20 minutes, and then we went to Little Dom's. And we just started talking about like, what are we going to do? We sort of celebrated. We toasted ourselves. I don't mean with booze. I just mean we were like proud. Maybe we did have a piece of cake, but it was like happy cake. And we were just like, what are we going to do? It's like every position you're in, this is some good Never Surrender stuff. Every position you're in... Like when I was starting out, Dimitri Martin said to me, I was handing out flyers, like in Crashing, but in real life. And he said to me, he goes, Anonymity is power. He means like no one knows who you are, but that means you can go in any direction. He's like, You can go on stage tomorrow and be a one liner guy. You can go on stage tomorrow and be a story guy. You could be a character. You could do anything. Nobody knows you, and that's sad. And also, nobody knows you, and that's powerful. So, similarly, We just got canceled. I could have different friends and I could have a different temperament that's like, we got canceled. The headline is Pete Holmes canceled. You know what I mean? Not that anybody writes headlines anymore. I'm just saying that could be the headline. Sure. It's my name canceled. You could look at it that way or you could be like, and this is what we did. People know who we are now. Just a little bit. Not everybody, but just a little bit. So same with crashing. Crashing goes away. Even more people know who you are. So what are we really doing here? Some of us are trying to get rich and famous. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. But I think even, I would say this again, we also just want to make some shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. So like the things that happen, even the things that end when they're done and the dust settles, you just go like, are we more capable or less capable of making the things we want to make? So even when crashing went away, you go like, well, that sucks, but it's also a type of power. You're free now; you can do you can do whatever you want. You can get scared because you can do whatever you want, sure. or not do whatever you want, but you can try to do whatever you want. You can get scared that those things might fail, or you can sort of lean into it and go like, "This is power too. This is a different type of power." Yeah, yeah. You're doing uh, you you go and do crashing, and it's about your
1: life. How do you hire writers to write about? Y- who you are as a part, like how do you decide who is going to get you to be able to be the right people to write on a show like that? That seems Hmm. difficult.
3: Yeah. I guess we were just looking for the mix between like writers, like people who write for TV and then comedians who would like keep the show grounded in its reality and that would share their stories and stuff. So a lot of the stuff like, um, Pete being asked to open for somebody and then when he gets there there was a mix up with the name. Forgive me writers room, but I forget whose story that was, but that was somebody's story in mm-hmm. the room. So you use things like that and that's it makes the show different, a different premium. With like a show like Mad Men, you want like the best of the best, you know, writers. Sure. We wanted the best of the best comedians who also are maybe new to t- TV writing, but we didn't care as much as as like mining their uh experiences and their and their wit that's
1: great so
3: yeah it, it was it, it was more about finding a room that we could be comfortable to be uncensored i sort of feel my belief is that a writer's room should uh, mimic a human brain like let's let's work with every embarrassing strange mm-hmm. facet of the mind and the way that we can kind of create that environment is is just having everything be safe because that's how i write when i'm alone I don't criticize myself. I don't censor myself. So you want the room to be, you want it to be safe and everybody to feel comfortable. And also you want to be able to be like, you know, my mom used to sit on my lap, you know, that's like a fucking weird story to tell. And then it ends up on the show, you know, or she used Mm -hmm. to kiss me on the mouth. She still would if I, if I hadn't stopped her, it's like a weird (laughs) thing to talk about, but then it ends up on the show, you know? So Comedians, there's no teaching them how to do that. And comedy writers, there's most of the time there's no teaching them how to do that. They understand that you're entering like a almost like a think tank, but it's like inappropriate thoughts tank. <laughs> yeah. Is it is
0: it weird going back and reliving these things that happened in yes. your life with
3: like cameras all
0: around you and yes. you're in a set? How That's does, why what, like, what is that
3: like? I'm excited, you know, for the potential of the next thing that I do to no matter what I do, it will be less personal than what I've done. And even Pete Holmes show and crashing were both so autobiographical that I'm like, I'm, I'm sort of done. I can't, I can't, I could maybe, but like, I don't really want to keep digging out the same ice cream. Mm -hmm. So it'd be like, what can we do that's less personal, but no matter what I choose, it's going to be less personal than what I've done because I've told this story so much, but it was, it was damaging, not in a bad way, not in a lasting way. But when I was shooting scenes especially in the first season and then especially with my fake parents i would um it would be i don't want to put down trauma people have trauma but it it was in the ballpark of traumatizing that you're having someone like every line that my parents said on the show is something they really say wow. so you're oh, hanging wow. out with them and you're like this actress is saying something that it felt like black mirror and then mm-hmm. she'd sit on your lap and she'd kiss you on the mouth. Oh, and stuff. wow. And you're oh, just like, this is like, God. it's in the script. I mean, she is. No, no, no,
1: no, no, no. Just, I mean, it's just, I'm yeah. Just, like, I, I'm thinking about it, and then I'm, it's like, you, you think about it, and you're like, oh, my God, no. And it you're in, it, and it's you in it. Yeah, it's like you're playing. You woke up from the time. a dream,
3: and then we were like, "Well, we have costumes. Let's reenact that nightmare." Oh my and god! And let's do it from seventeen different angles. And and you did this to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! And by like, the way, you did this to yourself. Was Apatow, some sort of PTSD. Was uh, and it could also be healing. Yeah, you know, by the end of it, you were so not to force the book, but yeah, in the book, I kind of talk about this as like working through something so much <laughs> that you get that deeper personalized thing i would start when i would edit the show i would say um is there one where pete's more energetic or something and that's just like i think what producers do they start seeing their actor selves as something else
1: right was abatto around with you at all during it he was
3: the most hands-on producer in the world and i and it sounds like that's code for he was down my neck and he couldn't i wish he was so down my neck we were wearing the same shirt i couldn't i couldn't get enough of his input that's amazing i couldn't get enough of his huge changes uh i say this because it's a testament to how much i loved him was not to say like i was mad i'd write a script and go like i don't think this script's right for the season and i just would never think about it again because you're just like well he knows what he's doing when you can trust the number one guy Mm -hmm. that implicitly yeah it and i'm i'm actually it turns out i i like to be in charge but i also like um if I if I respect and trust the person I like, I'm a good soldier as well. I don't know how to say that other than an army metaphor, but it's like I can be a lieutenant, but I also am a pretty good soldier. So if he's like rewrite this, but make it more of this, and I'd be like, you got it. I re, I re- rewrote the pilot sixteen times. Oh wow. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. So and that was that's how Jed works. Wow. That's it's so the same right. thing. A lot of these producers that can kind of do whatever they want. And do anything they want, and and institutions that can do whatever they want. HBO, or I'm thinking of the New Yorker. Actually, they don't want to buy a cartoon. I do. I used to do cartoons for the New Yorker. They don't want to buy a cartoon. They want to prove you need to prove to them that you can give them ten great cartoons every week for years before they'll buy one. And Judd's similar, where he's sort of Mister Miyagiing you, where he's like, "We'll write the script, and then he likes it, and he'll give you some feedback. That's nice." That's a thrill. But he's going to say, rewrite it and rewrite it like this. And you're going to do it. And that's going to happen 15 more times. And otherwise, what is he doing with his time? He doesn't want to train somebody. He doesn't want to teach someone the karate that he knows. Sure. If they're not going to be like, yeah, I'll get up at 3 in the morning. It's very Nancy Kerrigan. I'm trying to think of an ice skater. I didn't mean to pick a controversial one. Right. (laughs) I'm just saying it's very ice skatery. It's like, you you want to do this? we leave at 3:30 in the morning. Right. Yeah. It's very rocky. Yeah. Or Creed. It's like or any of those movies. He was the trainer that would like uh never he, I never felt like he was fucking with me, but he was keeping me sharp and wow. I have some fond memories of having talking about being lean and stuff. We shot that scene with the pastor at the baptism in the first step season and the scene wasn't working and then Judd was just like I I think we either need to cut the scene or you need to rewrite it. And then instead of taking lunch, which was not a lot of producers and show creators don't work through lunch. It's not like a special thing, but I went into my dressing room and rewrote it. Um, I only had like 20 minutes or whatever. And so it's this big moment. It's one of my fondest memories. And I gave Judd the printout of the new scene and he sort of read it without <laughs> smiling or anything. And he just goes, You're at the top of your game. (laughs) He just handed it back, and I was like, that's like a really good moment. But I was at the top of my game because of those. He's not Lauren Michaels. You know, he's not playing mind games. I don't think Lauren thinks he is either. He's just doing what he does as a producer to keep his talent uh, sharp. And I think that's one of the reasons why he does has such a good track record
0: i guess you can't be precious in that situation being like well this is really what happened to me and judd saying well that, that happened to you but that's not going to work on a tv show well he he would
3: do that all yeah he would do that all the time and i'd be like well my uh for example i didn't walk in on my wife he's like yeah but it's a pilot something needs to happen it can't be your wife telling you she's been having an affair it's way less funny than him having a small cloth on his penis and he keeps dropping it like that's way funnier
1: yeah yeah, <laughs> smart. it's very. Smart. Although I
3: will say before we shot that scene, Jed was like, "Is the dick thing is that is that too broad?" <laughs> <laughs> he was worried that it was too stupid or something, and I right. was like, "I think it's, it's so just funny. the right amount of stupid." Yeah, yeah, no,
1: it's always funny. Dick, dick <laughs> is funny. I think it's funny.
3: vagina's funny too. Depends on how you you know do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, All genitals can be funny.
1: All genitals. can gonna be funny. That's the name um, of the
0: podcast. Actually, we're changing the name. That's gonna all be the new. Can be yeah. funny. All genitals. All are, genitals are funny. Welcome back funny. to
3: AGAF. <laughs> <laughs> he, tell us about your genitals. Oh, they are funny.
0: A gaff. Um, yeah, that you that have a baby like, now. Yeah. Yeah, I do. And um, uh, question to you is now that you've had your uh success and you've had your failures you know what would you say to her in what you have what have you learned from your failures if like later in life she's gonna have her struggles yeah you know what would you say to her
3: well it's it's a little bit trite i suppose but it's true is that like i'm very careful even when we were talking not to call these things um failures i i know what you're saying i'm not saying don't call them failures <laughs> they are um but it's something Val said to me, and I think she got it from Dan Savage. She was like, just because something ends doesn't mean it was a failure, right? Sure. And that's true of relationships, and that's yeah. true of jobs. That's just true of life. And again, it is a spiritual thing. It's like nothing... So the Buddha says that like life is suffering, right? What does he mean by that? He's like, well, not having what you want is suffering, Having what you don't want is suffering, but then also having what you want is suffering because you know it doesn't last. Everything's temporary. Everything's in time, so you're going to lose it at some point. So even having what you want is suffering. So we need to be careful how we define success. I think success is an internal state. It's it's how you brush your teeth. It's how you do this interview. It's how you drive in your car. It's how you handle a thirty minute delay delay when you land in Hawaii. That is success.
0: Or a 30-minute delight. Yeah,
3: exactly. (laughs) Anyway, you mean just like a live delight? (laughs) But um, that, so the failures are all just uh, little turbulence to help you um, practice and cultivate, practice cultivating that inner state. And obviously the things that end do help you learn. Like Seinfeld says, the bad shows teach you more than the good shows. And that's really true. And the failures did teach me more than the successes. And that's really true. And then on, and I guess on the next level down, you could say that it's all in the game. We don't have to resist the failures. We have to say like, what, what can I, what can wake me up in this? And in my experience, the wake up stuff is often more in the suffering. Yeah. But uh, right. yeah, but then also on top of that, I'd just be like, I said this to my, my na- our nanny is a wonderful comedian. And I was like, the bads don't forget the bad sets are just pulling the bow back for the next good set. So you have this bad set and you're moving farther away from your target but it's really just creating the tension that's necessary to have the good set feel so good. Oh, right. That's so Right about that. You know what I mean? That's amazing. The good set wouldn't feel good if you hadn't had the bad set, like you need the bad set. So this is the always surrender podcast. It's like when you, you (laughs) surrender into what's happening, you can have that perspective. I'm just like, this too, this too, this too, this too, this too. But then on a very less spiritual, more practical level, the bad one informs how good the good one feels.
1: Sure. Yeah. It really does.
3: No up without down. You're incredible. Great. Thanks, Thank buddy. you, Jack. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate it.
1: Never Surrender. Never Surrender is produced by Western Sound. Executive producers are Jack Hergoth, Stephen Kramer Glickman, and Ben Adair. Producers are Sabrina Fang and Cameron Kell. Music by Hannes Brown. On social media,
0: you can check us out on Instagram at Never Surrender Pod, on Twitter at Surrender Pod, and on Facebook at Never Surrender Podcast. You can also email us at Podcast at gmail.com to share your own stories about how you struggled, failed, and ultimately never surrendered.